Amen. Good morning. You may be seated. Uh, If we have any young kids at this time, they can be dismissed uh, for the kids' lesson. Just go to the back lobby and they'll be taken there uh, this morning. Uh, Today we have the great privilege of continuing our way in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 8 if you have your Bibles or device. Uh, as we uh, just continue to see what, what is next, we've seen recently a lot of unbelief, uh, particularly in the disciples. And then last week, um, as Peter uh, shared with us, we, we saw that, that moment um, where Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. And you might be, begin to think for a moment that, oh, the disciples, they finally get it. They finally understand who Jesus is. They they understand He's the Christ, He's the Messiah, the long-awaited promised one. And, of course, as we're going to see, they still don't quite get it. They don't quite understand what that means that Jesus is the Christ. And as we uh, go through the passage this morning, I want us to ultimately see two things. That the way of the cross is the way of the Messiah. But I also want us to see, just as importantly, that the way of the cross is the way of the follower of Jesus. It's our way is the way of the cross as well. So let's dive in. I'm going to read a little bit of the passage from last week just to set the stage, and then we'll dive into the, this week's. So let's begin. Uh, verse 27, chapter 8. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no woman, no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Peter took him aside, and he began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel's, We'll save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father and with the holy angels? And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you help us to see clearly this morning? Would you help us to see and hear clearly your call to follow you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you are that person, and if you're not, you probably know that person quite well, who gets upset when plans are suddenly interrupted. You know, you, you, you make plans, you, you have everything together, you know what's going to happen that day or for that trip or whatever it is, and then suddenly something comes in, it interrupts the day, and you just can't handle it. For me, when that happens, as my family can attest, I maybe start getting a little grumpy at times and 
get a little irritable, you know, that things aren't going the way that I planned. This isn't the way things are supposed to work out. And, and we begin to get upset. There's something similar going on in our passage this morning as we see the disciples. They, the disciples, they have a plan. They have a plan for Jesus. They, they've begun to see who they think he is, that he is the Christ. And, and suddenly, their plan for him doesn't seem to match up with his plan. And what does Jesus tell him? He, he tries to help them understand, okay, you've, Peter, you've, you've confessed that I am the Christ, and he wants to share with them and tell them a little bit more of who, it, of who he really is. And as Mark tells us, he even, he even explains it how. He, he explains it plainly. You know, Jesus so often, he, he talks almost in coded words, and here, he speaks to them plainly, so there is no doubt. And by Peter's reaction, we see that there is no doubt. Peter totally understood exactly what Jesus said, and that's what upset him so much. And what does Jesus say that upset him so much? Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. You see, the disciples, they thought they understood who the Christ was, the the Messiah, and suddenly Jesus tells them something crazy to their mind. What does he tell them? He tells them that the the Messiah, the Christ, must suffer many things. He must be rejected. He must be killed before he rises again. Now, by the time he got to rising again, I think they were probably totally tuned out. You know, they, they were totally focused. Suffering? What? Rejected? Killed? No, this isn't. This isn't the Messiah we've been hoping for. This isn't the one we thought was coming. You see, when they hear Son of Man, Jesus says the Son of Man must suffer these many things. What are they thinking about? Their mind, unlike our mind probably, immediately leap to Daniel chapter 7. And what do we read there? We read about the Son of Man. Uh, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is the Son of Man that they were waiting for, the Messiah, the the, the long-awaited one, the one who would rule forever. And they've just confessed Jesus is this one. And now Jesus is saying that son of man, that son of man must suffer and be rejected and he must be killed. And and it just doesn't compute for them. It's like, just go with me here for a second. It's like they grew up. And growing up, they were taught that these curtains right here were pink. That's what they were taught from when they were little kids that this is the color pink. And Jesus is suddenly telling them, no, it's blue. And it just does, it's, it's completely incongruous to their minds. They, they, they can't comprehend it. It's so counter to everything that they believed and, and what they expected. They had these messianic expectations, these, these hopes of, of what this Christ was going to do. He was going to come and he was going to be king and, and he was going to kick the Romans out. And, and finally, Israel would be back to ruling itself again, right? Finally, they, they'd have their own kingdom. They'd have their own king and Jesus would be that king. Now, we need to understand something here. I don't think it's just their plans for the Messiah that are affected. I think part of what upsets Peter and, and upsets, I think, the rest of the disciples too. Remember, Jesus like looks back at all the disciples. I think Peter was just their messenger, okay? They're, they're all having these same thoughts. What Jesus says, it doesn't just disrupt their plans for the Messiah, it also disrupts their plans for them, okay? 
Now, I'm not saying that Peter and the, the, the other disciples, they're all in it for personal gain. That they don't have a real spiritual interest. But at the same time, if what Jesus said is true, that means all their plans are disrupted. All their hopes for, I mean, they are, they're the, the closest people to Jesus. And what does that mean when Jesus takes over and he becomes king? Can you imagine how that changed the lives of a common fisherman to suddenly be the closest acquaintances to the great king? Suddenly all those plans are dashed. He seems to be a different Messiah, a different Christ than they had hoped for. They were hoping for one. Jesus presents another. Is Jesus, I want to ask you this morning, is he the, is he the Messiah that you're hoping for? Is he really? Does maybe, and maybe we'll see as we flesh this out a little bit, does your view of Jesus maybe need to change just a little bit? Maybe even this morning. Now Peter's so upset about this, and I think the rest of the disciples too, but he's so upset, what does he do? He goes to Jesus, and what does he say? Verse 32, Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him. The same word there is what else is rebuked but previously in the Gospel of Mark, but demons. And Peter rebukes Jesus. Can you imagine the picture? You've just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And Peter's going to him and he's saying, Jesus, I know you're the Messiah. I'm, I'm really certain of it. But I think you don't understand the scriptures as well as you think you do. I think I understand who the Messiah is better than you. And Peter is bold enough to go and, and tell Jesus this. And what does Jesus respond? Verse 33 what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. Those are strong words, aren't they? Now, Jesus sometimes, Jesus speaks in hyperbole a lot, right? I don't think this is a moment of that. He really means it as seriously as he says it. And why is this? If, 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 we, if we just think back to Jesus' temptation and we, we, we jump over to the, to the Gospel of Matthew and in that third temptation, I just want to read a little bit of it to you. Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. You say, he, what, is, what is Satan telling Jesus? What is he tempting him with? He's saying, all the glory without the cross. I'll give you all the glory without suffering. Jesus, you can have it all. If you just bow down and worship me, we don't have to tell anybody about it. And you can get glory. He tempts him with a path that does not include the cross. And what does Jesus respond? What does he say? He says, be gone, Satan. Now, it might not show up as clearly for you, but those, the, the language there is so similar. He responds to Peter in almost the same way. Don't miss that that. Peter is offering to Jesus a similar temptation. He's offering to Jesus, no, there's, there, there's a way for you to get glory, Jesus, without suffering. You shouldn't have to suffer. You see, what Peter is offering is the devil's bargain. The devil's bargain. You know what that is, right? We, we see it sometimes in literature and movies. Just yesterday, I was looking around for, for a movie for us to watch last night as a family. I, we didn't land on this one. Um, but I was just reminded of it. Back from my childhood growing up in the early 90s, there was a movie called Stay Tuned. Some of you may have seen it, probably not. It's kind of a 
odd movie. But anyway, the whole premise is there's this guy and he's totally obsessed with watching TV. It's his life. That's where he tunes out of the rest of life and gets enjoyment, right? Without all the details, his TV is destroyed. And then what comes knocking at the demon? And basically, so that he can have his, his, his TV back, so he can have his entertainment back, so that he can again tune out the rest of the world, he signs the devil's bargain. He, he signs his, his life away, right? So that he can have an enjoyment in the moment. That's, in a sense, what Peter is tempting Jesus with. And don't think for a moment that it's not a real temptation. He's bringing, in a sense, that same temptation as that third one. He's saying, Jesus, there's a way without suffering. You don't have to go to the cross, Jesus, and understand that, that any bargain, any gospel out there that does not include the cross, that does not include suffering, is the devil's bargain. It's the same thing. And so he tells him boldly, get behind me, Satan. You're acting just like the devil did when he was tempting me. And Jesus is quick to correct him, right? Verse 31, what does he say? He says, the Son of Man must. The Son of Man must. All of the world religions have musts, don't they? And they begin with a must. All the other world religions, though, they begin with you must. They begin with I must. They, they tell us what we have to do, and Jesus comes, and what does he say? He says, I must suffer. He says, I must be rejected. I must be killed. He doesn't come first saying, you must. He, he says, I must. You see, he understood what the author of Hebrews meant whenever he said that with, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There's no other way. The Messiah had to come and, you know, all those bulls and goats of the Old Testament, they accomplished nothing as we learn as we read on in Hebrews, right? The, 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 those things accomplished nothing. What was needed was somebody like us. A bull and goat, they, they're not really like us. They can symbolize something like us, but they're not like us. And Jesus comes like us and he suffers and is killed so that we might be forgiven for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You, you see, Jesus is saying, this is the only way. Peter, there is no other way. Don't you dare tempt me with any other way. There is no other way. And you see part of Peter's blunder, Jesus corrects it in verse 33, doesn't he? What does he say there at the end? He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. You know, now, our initial reaction, my initial reaction is to always think that Peter's just trying to protect Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus to have to suffer. But Jesus kind of gives a different flavor to it, right? Jesus kind of seems to steer us in a, a different direction. It doesn't seem that Peter is just protecting Jesus. It seems Peter is also protecting Peter. And Peter is looking out for himself. He's looking out for the things of man. And this is what leads us then to our second point. Yes, the, the cross is the only way for the Messiah. But the way of the cross is also the life of the believer. It's also our way. It's the way that we must go. There is no other way. There's a story one preacher tells of 
staying up and probably shouldn't have, but watching preachers on the television late at night. And I um, mean, here's one of them, a prosperity guy who's talking about, you know, he's, he's on a flight and he's reading his newspaper. This is like in the late 2000s, I guess, but he, he's, he's reading a paper. It's in the midst of the recession and he, and he starts reading about it and how this is coming. And, and he just loudly on, on the plane, he says, what? He says, this recession will not touch me. He just shouts it out on the plane, and the guy next to him is like, what are you talking, what's going on here? He's like, oh, I'm so sorry, I don't usually talk out loud, uh, I'm just not used to, uh, I'm used to being on a private plane. You know, he's, he's like, I'm not used to this, you know, being on a plane with all these other people, and, 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 and then he goes on to explain to him, see, what you need to understand is I'm a child of God, and because I'm a child of God, this recession is not going to touch me. My ministry is going to continue to flourish because I'm a child of God. Is that the promise of Jesus? Is that the promise of Jesus that we see here in this text this morning? The kind of Jesus who promises that recessions won't touch Christians? That difficulties aren't going to come your way? Jesus calls the crowd. After he's spoken with disciples, he calls the crowd. And what does he tell them? Verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. If you want to follow him, what what do you have to do? What does it start with? Let him deny himself. Deny himself. That's totally counterculture to our world, isn't it? Totally countercultural to everything that we hear coming in from every other vein. This, this idea that we would somehow deny ourselves because it's so counter to who we are. What do we do? You and I, we, we love building up our own little kingdoms, don't we? We love being the, the kings, the queens of our own little domains, don't we? Let's be honest, we all have our palaces, don't we? And we are constantly, like any good king, any good queen, like any good royal, we're, we're constantly thinking about impro- improving that palace, right? Making that palace bigger, making it better, making it bigger. Maybe we need to buy a new, better palace. And we could go into all the other areas of our life where, we, where, 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 where that, that rain extends, where, we, where we're constantly trying to hold together where we are so concerned with building up our kingdoms. It could be in all sorts of areas. It could be in your job, in your, the life of your family, in, in, your, in your money, in all areas of your life where you, you build up your kingdom. And don't get me wrong, and this is part of where there's a naturally good instinct here. We were made to rule. Genesis 1, right? We were, we're, the cultural mandate, we, we were, were, were created to rule the earth, but where we get it all wrong is that we don't understand that we were made to rule as those who serve under a greater king, right? We were made to rule as viceroyalty. We were made to rule as those who were, who were doing the bidding and doing the desires and thinking first and foremost of the great king, not of our own little kingdom. And Jesus comes to us and he, he comes to our little kingdom and he says, you're not setting your, your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. You may call me Christ. You may call me Messiah. You may call me king, and you grant me authority in certain areas of your life, right? But then there's other areas of your life that you refuse to cede authority to. You refuse to allow him in. There there are these other areas that we act like little kids. You know the little kids sitting on the floor playing with their toys? And, and you reach over to grab that, that toy, and, and what does the kid do? Slaps the hand. And what do they say? Mine. 
And Jesus reaches over into our life and he says, mine, and we slap the hand of our Savior. We sound too much like those seagulls from Finding Nemo. You know what they say? Mine, 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 mine. It's like this natural inclination of our heart to protect our kingdoms, our little places, and Jesus comes to us and he says, you don't get it? All that you have is mine. You must deny yourself. Your loyalty should not be to yourself. Your loyalty should be to me. He calls us and he bids us. The one who, who, who died, who gave everything for us, the one who said, I must, says, will you follow me? One author puts it this way, a holy Self-denying, cross-bearing life is not the drudgery of a slave, but the filial, loving obedience of a child. It springs from love to a person. This is where this following of Jesus should come, a love for his person, a gratitude for the work of Jesus, and is the blessed effect of the spirit of adoption in our heart. You see, the one who came, the one who said, I must said, I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must be killed. He did it. And he did it for you. He did it for me. It's incredible to think of that that our king did that. The one who deserves everything, that deserves all authority, who never did anything wrong, came and willingly denied himself so that you and I might have life, that we might have true joy And he says to us, will you come and will you follow me? Will you become loyal to me, not just loyal to yourself? And Jesus gives some examples of the way that we pursue self, that we pursue our own little kingdoms, that we say mine, verse 35, whoever would save his life, Jesus says, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. He says, if what you're pursuing is protecting yourself, protecting your own kingdom, it's going to fail. If what you're doing is slapping Jesus' hand when he reaches over to say, that's mine too. He says, if, if you continue to do that, what you're doing is you're actually going to end up losing your very self. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? That the way of loss is the way of salvation. You see, what we must begin to understand is that that way that we usually pursue, that way of saying mine, is actually the way of bondage. It's the way of bondage. And Jesus is trying to help them to understand that. Verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? He says, go ahead. Build up your kingdom. See how that works out. Go ahead. Take the devil's bargain. How's that going to play out? Is it really worth forfeiting it all? Is it really worth this attempt to to gain the whole world? Now, for most of us, that's far bigger than our lives are. We don't don't usually think in the context of of gaining the whole world, but we have a whole lot that we desire to gain, right? A whole lot that, that we think, if we can just have that, if I can just pull that, if I can just make that mine. 
then I'll be happy. Then my life will have true and great joy. The problem is we've tried it over and over and it never works. How silly are we? We keep thinking this thing, if I grab it, I call it mine, it's going to make me happy and it's going to bring me joy. And what we find is every time we go on that, every time we go on that treadmill, right, we, we just want more. We just want the next thing. It's never enough. It's never good enough. We can never have enough. And Jesus says that that path of building up your kingdom, that path that we think is going to lead to happiness, it actually leads to death. And I think we actually experience that in our life. We, we see that pursuing these other things, they bring us momentary joy, but they always leave us feeling empty. We need to understand that the thing that Jesus wants us to crucify in our lives, the things that he wants us to put on the cross, they're actually the things that are going to destroy us. Okay, Jesus doesn't want us to be into, he's not calling us to some sort of masochism. He's calling us to, to do away with things that are actually destructive in our life so that we can have true and real life, so that we can have true joy. So that maybe we can say with the Apostle Paul in Galatians, I have no longer, I have been crucified with Christ. And what does he say? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Can you say that? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's a verse that back, especially in my college days, but quite frankly, I'm going to be honest with you, it still haunts me today. But it haunts me less. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's because I'm growing and maturing as a believer that it doesn't haunt me as much as it did when I was in college. But many times I'd share this verse with other folks and they kind of look at me like I'm crazy. You'll probably look at me like I'm crazy too. I don't know. But Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And I would share with them how that, how that kind of haunts me. Because I don't know if I can say that as a believer. That I struggle to say it. Now, let me be honest, as I've grown in life, there's, there's more and more times where I'm able to say those words. But there's a whole lot of times where I struggle to say them. And I remember telling that to some of my college friends. And they're like, no, of course. Of course I believe that. Of course. To die is gain. Of course I want to be with Jesus right now. And sometimes I ask, oh, really? Do you really? We sure don't live like it. We, we live that not is Christ, to live is me. To live is about building up my kingdom and, and, and my rule and my reign, not building up Christ. And if we're building up those kingdoms, surely we're not going to be concerned and think that for a moment that to die is to gain. Because it will be to lose this kingdom that we've built up. I think that verse should haunt us all if we're really being honest with ourselves. And I hope that over time and in life, and there are probably many in here who, who are much more mature in their Christian faith and walk much longer, who can much more faithfully say that, and hopefully that's where we come, that, that more and more we can, we can say that to live is Christ, to die is gain, that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But it's a path. Not always an easy path. So Jesus calls us to deny ourselves. He calls us to, to take up our cross. Now this... You've you got to understand, I mean, for us, like, crosses are like a pretty thing, right? We, we even sing of their wonder and beauty, right? Of the wonder and beauty of the cross, as we should, because there's a goodness for us as Christians to the cross. 
But in that moment, that day, to see somebody with a cross on them, what did that mean? It meant they were going to their death. It meant they'd done something really, really terrible. They were really, really bad people. If you're carrying a cross, it meant one thing, you're going to die today. And for the disciples to hear that, it meant even more. I mean, can, can you imagine being the disciples hearing this, that you're going to have to carry your cross? Well, that meant a couple of things for them. First of all, of course, in the Old Testament Scriptures, we hear that curse that, that cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. But then add to that that, of course, the cross was the, 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 it was the means of, of execution of the Roman government. And for the disciples, that would be even more compelling. I thought you and the Messiah are supposed to kick them out, and you're saying that we've got to carry across this sign of execution of the Roman government? Really? Now, we need to understand as we think through this that carrying a cross, this isn't a, a call to martyrdom necessarily. Okay? It's not a call to martyrdom necessarily. For some, it could at some point be. I don't want to rule that out. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is calling us to run into that or run into to martyrdom. In fact, in, in Luke, Jesus talks about how this denying ourselves and taking up our cross is a daily task. We're to, we're to actually take up our cross daily. It's a daily thing that you and I are to do. And this taking up the cross, it's a very public task. <laughs> to, to carry a cross was a public thing, right? And that's why in verse 38, what does Jesus says? Forever is ashamed of me. And of my words, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father and with holy angels. You see, it's a public thing. We carry a cross because Jesus carried a cross. We carry a cross. When we carry a cross, it's, it's to be identified with Jesus. It's a public proclamation of it. It, it, it is to publicly identify with the king, with him as king, saying that he rules and he reigns in my life. And people look at you because you carry the cross, not, not because you're wearing it physically, but because you carry the cross, because you live as one who denies themselves, who, who takes up their cross and who constantly follows Jesus daily. And people see it and they see that you are unashamed, unashamed of Jesus. That's how they see it. Now, this isn't an easy thing to do, this denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following Jesus. No doubt there's going to be much suffering in our life. We shouldn't expect that we're going to somehow get to avoid it. Our king does not promise us an easy life. And so this is a hard thing for me to, you know, like, this isn't the sermon I want to get up here and have to share, you know, like, you're going to suffer, sorry, and you know what, because you're a Christian, you might have to suffer more. In fact, you probably will. But if we want to follow him, our king calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. You see, true life, real life, true joy, real joy is really only found in sacrifice. One author put it this way, never, never doth a soul know what solid joy and substantial pleasure is till once being weary of itself. It renounces all propriety, giving itself up unto the author of its being 
and feel itself become a hallowed and devoted thing and can say, and can you say, I'm content to be anything for him and care not for myself, but that I may serve him. One pastor puts it this way, to take up the cross is to take up joy. It may be painful joy, but it is joy nonetheless. To take up the cross is to walk with the one who in great love bore the ultimate cross, the ultimate cross in our place. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you, do you understand that this is it's so contrary to all our presuppositions that the way to save our life is to lose it? Death was the way to life for Jesus. Death is the way to life for Jesus' disciples. It's a different death. It may be primarily dying to ourselves, dying with Christ. We must understand that the words of C.S. Lewis, I think, are true. He says, die before you die. There is no chance after. Die before you die. There is no chance after. Are you going to deny yourself? Take up your cross and follow him. This is the call of our Savior. It comes with promises. Let's not miss them. I promise I'll be quick as we wrap up. Verse 35. He says, whoever loses his life. And I hope you saw it earlier. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will actually save it comes with an incredible promise for us. And we, we, we should not miss, miss that. And then as we were thinking through a minute ago and read about, if you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. What does the contrary to that, though, mean? That if you are in Christ, if you are really a follower of Christ, if you really know Him, He is not ashamed of you. He was not ashamed of Peter, who even denied Him three times. He's not ashamed of Peter who he had to say, get behind me, Satan. Because Peter was his. Peter was united to him. And he was not ashamed of Peter. He is not ashamed of you if you're in Christ. And that incredible promise so comes, that promise that he comes in glory. And just as he is glorified, just as, as, as he promised that he will rise again on the third day, so, so too will we. So too do we get to, to look forward to glory. And he even tells his disciples that they're going to get to see a piece of it before they die. Verse nine, chapter 9, verse 1. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. We don't know exactly when he's talking about. He could be talking about the transfiguration that we're going to talk about next week. Could be the resurrection. Could be his ascension. But the disciples were going to get to see just a little picture of it, a little piece of it, of this glory that they get to look forward to, that you and I get to look forward to. This calling. This calling to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. It comes with incredible promises. Don't miss those promises. But there's one last thing that we got to make sure that we don't miss. And maybe it's a question that you're already thinking of some way in your head. Well, well isn't this kind of like works righteousness? Are we somehow saving our own life through our actions by denying ourselves that, oh, if we're, we're not ashamed of him, he won't be ashamed of us? No, to begin to think in that direction is to totally turn the gospel on its head. We must remember 
that Jesus must. And that comes first. And so important. That Jesus must suffer, as he said. He must be rejected. He must be killed. That must comes first. Our following is the following of one who has already suffered and who has died in our place. It's our response to such an incredible Savior. Our response is, is to follow Him. It's to want to deny ourselves. It's want to run after Him, as Paul says in Philippians 3, as he's near the end. He says, indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And for His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, garbage, trash, in order that I may gain Christ. You see, all of Christ's followers, if you're a follower of Christ, if you are united to Christ this morning, if you are here as a believer, if you're not, I hope you seriously consider what we've spoken of in particular, what Jesus has done, that he came and he, he, he suffered and he died so that you could have the opportunity, so that you could have eternal life. And for the rest of us, if you're already in Christ, if you already know him, you are one of these who are denying yourself. You're, you're, you're taking up your cross and you are following him. It may be painfully slow. It may be incredibly painfully slow right now in your life. And you need to reflect on that. And you need to, to, to dive through that. But, but we don't do this. We don't deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him in order to save ourselves. We don't even do it to earn glory. We do these things because he has given it all for us. Because he came, and, and he did not just say that the Son of Man must suffer, that, that he must be rejected and he must be killed. He actually went through with it. We deny ourselves. We carry our cross because he already did. And he did it for us. He did it for you. He did it for me. Our king went before us carrying his cross And he didn't do it for himself. He didn't carry that cross for himself. He carried it for you. He denied himself. The great king of kings, the Messiah himself, the long-expected one that they've been hoping for, what did he do? He suffered for you. He was rejected for you. He was killed for you. But of course, it doesn't end there. He rose again after three days, conquering sin and death, vanquishing it forever for you and for me. And he calls you and I this morning. And he bids us, the one who gave it all for you, the one who denied himself for you, the one who carried his carried your cross. The one who was killed for you. He calls you and I this morning to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow him. Will you?
Let's pray. Oh, Father, in some ways, what a heavy, <laughs> what a heavy topic. It's one we don't like to hear. We don't like to hear the idea that somehow we have to d- deny ourselves. Oh, Father, pray that this morning even we've heard clearly your call to us, that we've been reminded of, of your incredible sacrifice on our behalf, that we've seen you, the Messiah, for who you really are and for what you really came to do. And oh, would you help it? us amid our unbelief, amidst our struggle, amidst this painfully slow process of dying to ourselves, of living for you. Holy Spirit, would you be at work in us? Peeling away the layers that need to be peeled away. Oh, we need your help. We can't do this alone. We can't do this on our own. We pray, would you be with us, be present with us. We need you present with us this week. Help us. Help us to follow you, the Savior of our souls, the one who gave it all for us. We pray this in your matchless name, Jesus Christ. Amen.